stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. essentials questions for students and anyone else who's willing to listen to them. Uh, that was Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening, read by none other than the author himself, Robert Frost. I thought you might enjoy that. It's sort of a relaxing poem to listen to once or twice or maybe more. So uh, I have a special surprise for the last, ooh, maybe 20 or 30 seconds of this podcast. So if you can make it through these five questions, you'll get a, another little treat in terms of a reading that uh, might bring you back a few years. So we're going to uh, still be doing the infectious disease section of I Am Essentials, and we're going to be starting with question number 38. This is a 32-year-old man who's admitted to the hospital for a three-week history of increasing dyspnea exertion, dry cough, pleuritic chest pain, and fever. The patient has had multiple sexual partners of both genders. On physical examination, temperature is 38.6 degrees centigrade or 101.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 110 over 66, pulse rate is 112 per minute, and the respiratory rate is 24 per minute. Oxygen saturation is 89% on ambient air. The oropharynx shows scattered white plaques. Lung auscultation shows diffuse crackles bilaterally. The remainder of the examination is normal. The result of a rapid HIV test is positive. Sputum gram stain shows few neutrophils, pseudohyphae, and mixed bacteria. Chest radiograph shows bilateral diffuse reticular infiltrates. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Cytomegalovirus pneumonia. B. Mycobacterium avium complex infection. C. Pneumocystis urevecchi pneumonia. D, pulmonary candidiasis. Again, those choices are cytomegalovirus pneumonia, choice A. Choice B, mycobacterium avium complex infection. C, pneumocystis urevecchi pneumonia. Or D, pulmonary candidiasis. So hopefully you got this one correct. This would be considered 
a somewhat basic question about an uh, HIV patient who has signs of a low CD4 count, basically. <clears throat> the most likely diagnosis is pneumocystisuria vecchinomonia choice C. This patient has known risk factors for HIV infection and a reactive rapid HIV test, which comes back positive. He very likely has HIV infection, although with these rapid tests, uh, they need to be confirmed with a Western blot testing um, to make sure that it's not a false positive, but this patient, of course, has all the story for being HIV infected. Um, so he presents with a subacute presentation with dry cough and dyspnea, and his chest radiograph has findings of diffuse interstitial disease, which is very typical of PJP or pneumocystis giravecchi pneumonia in patients with AIDS. PJP is also the most common opportunistic infection in patients who are not taking pneumocystis prophylaxis. Back in the day before these antiretrovirals were developed, back when I was a intern and resident, something like 60% of patients who were HIV infected and were developing AIDS presented with pneumocystis infection. So very, very, very common pulmonary infection. Uh, so uh, they say here that bronchoscopy with lavage can be done with special stains to confirm the diagnosis. Uh, back in the day, we used to just use induced sputums. We'd have to do at least three of those, <coughs> excuse me, before uh, the pulmonologist would consider doing a bronchoscopy. And depending on the center and the experience of the lab, they had up to a 90 or 95 percent uh, specificity, uh, specifically at San Francisco General Hospital. Uh, so you need experienced uh, respiratory people and experienced lab techs to be able to do that test correctly. So although it can cause, regarding the other questions that, that are incorrect, although it can cause pneumonia in transplant recipients, cytomegalovirus is an unusual cause of pneumonia in patients with AIDS. That is not to say that uh, they don't find CMV in the lungs of patients with AIDS, um, but it's not thought to be a pathogen in terms of being invasive. In such patients, CMV is more likely to present as retinitis or gastrointestinal disease, and usually the CD4 count is less than 50 per microliter in patients who have those diseases, namely CMV retinitis or gastrointestinal disease from CMV. Mycobacterium avium complex usually causes disseminated disease in patients with AIDS, and a CD4 cell count of less than 50 microliters um, uh, would be the story with these patients. And they'd come in with systemic symptoms such as fevers, sweats, weight loss, and involvement of the liver, spleen, and lymph nodes, not as pulmonary disease. So don't think of a MAC as um, a predominantly pul pulmonary presentation with these patients. And then Candida <clears throat> is, is a very rare cause of pulmonary infection, even in Im immunocompromised hosts. And to my knowledge, I've well, at least in my experience, I've never seen Canada cause any kind of um, pneumonia or anything like that in, in HIV-infected patients. It just really, really, really um, barely ever happens. The presence of pseudohyphae in the patient's sputum is most likely a result of his oral candidiasis as seen on his physical examination and not evidence of pulmonary involvement. 
I have to say, I think that's a bit of a um, curveball that they threw you in this question. I can't remember the last time I saw a sputum in an AIDS patient come back with pseudohyphae in it, but I think they were just trying to distract you. So be careful with that on these test questions. So the key point here is that pneumocystis yervecchi pneumonia um, is characterized by a subacute presentation with dry cough and dyspnea, hypoxia, and findings of diffuse interstitial disease on chest radiograph. So this is one of those classic questions you're very likely to get on your, on your shelf uh, or step two, step three, or if you go into internal medicine, the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine exam. All right, so let's do question number 39. Oh, the loons got in my office again. <laughs> I have all kinds of animals running around here. Item number 39, a 46-year-old man underwent a total right hip replacement five months ago after a motorcycle accident. He presents now with a three-week history of progressively increasing pain in the right hip, initially with ambulation and now at rest. He has no other symptoms. Medical history is unremarkable and he takes no medications. On physical examination, temperature is 37.9 degrees centigrade or 100.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Vital signs are otherwise normal. The right hip shows a well-healed surgical scar without drainage. The remainder of the examination is unremarkable. Plain radiograph of the right hip shows soft tissue swelling and lucency along the bone prosthesis interface. Aspiration of the joint shows many polymorphonuclear leukocytes and gram-positive cocci in clusters. Uh-oh. Culture of the aspirated fluid grows, coagulase negative, staphylococci. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Hyper, uh, it's A, hyperbaric oxygen and intravenous antibiotics. B, intravenous antibiotics. C, removal of the hip prosthesis and intravenous antibiotics. D, surgical irrigation of the prosthetic joint and intravenous antibiotics. So let's run through those answers again. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? A, hyperbaric oxygen and intravenous antibiotics. B, IV antibiotics. C, removal of the hip prosthesis and intravenous antibiotics or D, surgical irrigation of the prosthetic joint and intravenous antibiotics. So the correct choice here is actually C, and this is a question about managing uh, prosthetic joint infections. So this patient's uh, prosthetic joint should be removed, and he should be treated with appropriate intravenous antibiotics for four to six weeks. Effective treatment of prosthetic joint infection generally requires removal of all foreign material, the joint, as well as the cement. In the presence of a foreign body, bacteria produces this biofilm, which is also, just for your uh, vocabularies here, is known as a uh, glycocalyx um, that allows the organism to persist protected from the host defenses and blocks penetration of many antibiotics. Hence, eradication of the infection requires removal of the hardware, four to six weeks of appropriate antibiotic therapy, and in many cases, re-implantation arthroplasty 
which is considered a two-stage strategy. Antibiotic impregnated polymethylmethacrylate is commonly used in cement spacers to maintain normal anatomic alignment once the prosthetic joint has been removed for the duration of antibiotic therapy. The antibiotic agent achieves high concentrations in the surrounding tissues as it elutes, so it comes out of the polymethylmethacrylate. The spacer is removed at the time of reimplantation. So if you've ever taken care of a patient like this, and I have taken care of a number of them, many times they are non-weight-bearing for the duration of when they uh, have that spacer in there and are being treated with uh, antibiotics. Antibiotic treatment with uh, retention of the... So regarding the wrong answers here, uh, one of the choices was just IV antibiotics. So antibiotic treatment with retention of the infected prosthetic joint is associated with very high failure rates. This includes treatment with either intravenous antibiotics alone or antibiotics used in conjunction with surgical debridement and irrigation of the prosthesis. So it's really pretty much standard of care that the um, artificial joint and cement needs to come out and they need to get um, this prolonged IV antibiotics, plus minus this methylmethacrylate <laughs> um, impregnated spacer. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy may have an adjunctive role in the setting of decreased tissue oxygen levels, such as in osteomyelitis, in the setting of diabetes mellitus and peripheral vascular disease, but not in prosthetic joint infection. So the key point here is that infection of an orthopedic implant requires removal of the prosthesis followed by an extended course of antibiotics. This is really a very um, sort of basic concept uh, that's good to know for surgery, medicine, pediatrics, family, whatever. So uh, next we're going to do item 40, and I will not let the loons back in here for this question. So this is a 68-year-old woman who's admitted to the hospital because of fever and back pain that has worsened over the last several weeks. Medical history is, in, uh, sorry, is significant for kidney failure secondary to hypertension. She has been treated with hemodialysis for the last four months. On physical examination, temperature is 38.2 degrees centigrade, uh, 100.8 Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 138 over 82 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 92 and respiratory rate is 12 per minute. There is a tunneled dialysis catheter in the left upper chest without evidence of inflammation. There is tenderness to palpation over the lumbar spine. The remainder of the physical examination is normal with no focal neurologic findings. Laboratory studies include leukocyte count of 13,000 per microliter with 72% neutrophils. Magnetic resonance imaging shows destructive changes to the T12 and L1 vertebral bodies with no paraspinal collections or spinal cord impingement. Blood culture findings are positive for methicillin-resistant staph aureus. So my sort of suggestion with a question like this is before you actually even read the question, think about what the clinical diagnosis is here and kind of maybe contemplate what you understand should be done next. So in addition, so here's the question for you. In addition to removal of the dialysis catheter, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A, antibiotic therapy alone. Uh, 
B, antibiotic therapy with debridement of the involved vertebral bodies. C, percutaneous biopsy and culture of paraspinal tissue before antibiotic administration. Or D, technetium-99 bone scan of the spine before antibiotic administration. So I won't read those choices. Well, I'll read the choices again. Antibiotic therapy alone, antibiotic therapy with debridement. C is percutaneous biopsy and culture of the paraspinal tissue before you give antibiotics. Or D, technetium bone scan of the spine before antibiotic administration. Um, so as you're contemplating this, uh, this case, um, think of it you know, in terms of a problem representation. You have an elderly woman who has end-stage kidney disease on dialysis presenting with a fever back pain, positive blood cultures for staph aureus, and an MRI showing osteomyelitis. So think about what your choice would be, and let's go to the answer, which is A. And that this, this patient should be treated with antibiotic therapy for four to six weeks. Hematogenous vertebral osteomyelitis can often be successfully treated with antibiotics alone, with relapse rates of less than 10% at 6 to 12 months of follow-up. So blood cultures are very important in the diagnostic assessment of osteomyelitis. Findings are positive in about 58% of cases of vertebral osteomyelitis. A positive blood culture finding precludes the need for more invasive diagnostic procedures such as percutaneous interventions for biopsy or culture. And just a uh, me inserting my opinion in here is that if you didn't get anything on the blood cultures, then you might very well need to go to uh, bone biopsy. Um, bone scans in vertebral osteomyelitis often become positive early in the course of infection, but have lower specificity than an MRI. So a bone scan would be unlikely to provide additional information in this case, and therefore is not indicated. And you guys all know from experience that we hardly ever get bone scans anymore, um, and we usually go for MRI, which can be safely done in most patients. Indications for surgical intervention, in case you got fooled by this answer, include the need for abscess drainage, removal of an orthopedic implant, and need for stabilization of the spine. None of these features is present in this case. Therefore, surgical treatment is not indicated pending a course of antibiotic therapy. So the key point here is that blood culture findings that are positive for pathogenic bacteria in the setting of hematogenous vertebral osteomyelitis have a high level of diagnostic accuracy and preclude the need for more invasive diagnostic testing. And if you didn't uh, catch where this was hematogenously spread from, it was obviously from the dialysis catheter that she had. Okay. Moving on here, question 41, a 25-year-old man is evaluated because of a two-week history of purulent drainage from a small opening in a previously healed right lower extremity wound. Six months ago, the patient had an open, comminuted fracture of the proximal tibia that was treated with internal fixation with a metal plate. He recovered well after surgery with complete healing of his surgical incisions. He has otherwise felt well. 
On physical examination, temperature is 37.2 degrees centigrade, blood pressure is 120 over 75 millimeters of mercury, and the respiratory rate is 12 per, 12 per minute. There's a well-heeled surgical incision over, overlying the right tibia, except for a 2 millimeter opening at the distal margin with minimal surrounding erythema and slight purulent drainage. The remainder of the examination is normal. Swab samples from the wound grow an enterococcus species that is susceptible to all antibiotics tested, which I find very hard to believe myself for an enterococcus, but be that as it may, that's what the question says, so we'll accept that. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A bone biopsy culture, B, intravenous vancomycin, C, nuclear medicine bone scan, or D, oral ampicillin. So once more, choices are A, bone biopsy culture, B, intravenous vancomycin, C, nuclear medicine bone scan, or D, oral ampicillin. So the uh, answer here is choice A. Uh, the most appropriate next step in management is deep bone biopsy with culture before antimicrobial therapy has begun. The development of a draining sinus tract from the wound above a bone that underwent surgical instrumentation is highly suspicious for underlying contiguous osteomyelitis. The patient's current condition is presumably related to his initial open trauma and the associated surgery six months ago. So microbiologic isolates from cultures obtained from a wound or draining sinus tract generally do not reliably correlate with the pathogen in the infected bone, with the occasional exception of Staph aureus. And I think there's people who would argue with that, as in it may not even be helpful in that situation. Because of limited utility and the possibility of providing misinformation, the use of microbiologic isolates from a culture of a wound or a draining sinus tract to guide antibiotic therapy is discouraged. Instead, identification of the causative pathogens is best attempted by bone biopsy performed surgically or percutaneously with radiographic guidance. Once the causative organism is recovered, treatment usually consisting of at least six weeks of parenteral antimicrobial therapy can be initiated. Debridement of necrotic material is often necessary, and if feasible, removal of the metallic hardware is performed to promote microbiologic eradication and clinical success. Although many isolates of enterococcus are susceptible to either ampicillin or vancomycin, vancomycin, initiation of prolonged antibiotic therapy would not be indicated without further confirmation of osteomyelitis and identification of this organism as its cause. Additionally, antibiotic therapy for osteomyelitis is usually given parenterally to ensure adequate penetration into bone. Therefore, treatment with an oral antibiotic would likely not be effective. A nuclear medicine study, such as three-phase technetium-99 labeled bone scan, is a very sensitive imaging modality for detecting osteomyelitis. However, this study lacks specificity and findings would be expected to be abnormal because of the patient's recent surgery. Therefore, this test could not be reliably used to confirm a diagnosis of bone infection or identify its causative agent. So a key point in this question, in patients with suspected osteomyelitis, 
the microbiologic isolates from cultures obtained from a wound or draining sinus tract generally do not reliably correlate with the pathogen in the infected bone, with the occasional exception of Staph aureus. So try and store that away because that's a pretty important point. All right, so last question is item 42. A 59-year-old woman is evaluated because of a one-week history of increasing pain in the right foot. She recalls stepping on a nail about one month before the symptoms began. She reports no drainage from the previous puncture wound site, which has healed completely. Medical history is otherwise unremarkable. She takes no medications. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Examination of the foot shows tenderness and warmth directly below the proximal fifth metatarsal bone. Plain radiograph of the right foot is normal. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step to establish the diagnosis? A. Computed tomography. B. Gallium scan. C. Magnetic resonance imaging. Or D. Three-phase bone scan. So... Weigh in with your answers. A, computed tomography. B, gallium scan. C, magnetic resonance imaging. Or D, three-phase bone scan. All right, let's see if you dropped your quarter on the right answer or nickel or whatever that was that you dropped there. So the answer here is C. The next study that should be performed is magnetic resonance imaging of the foot. And Many of you have probably seen this in clinical practice where there's suspicion for osteomyelitis. MRI is almost always the best test, assuming that the patient can undergo an MRI. The clinical hallmarks of acute osteomyelitis are local pain and fever, particularly in patients with acute hematogenous osteomyelitis. However, these symptoms may be absent in patients with chronic and contiguous osteomyelitis, which is what this woman would have since she stepped on a nail. Given the limitations of physical examination findings in the diagnosis of osteomyelitis, radiographic studies are frequently used. In patients who have normal findings on plain radiographs in the presence of high clinical suspicion for osteomyelitis, more advanced imaging techniques are indicated. MRI is the preferred imaging study for the evaluation of possible osteomyelitis. MRI can show changes of acute osteomyelitis within days of infection and are superior and more sensitive, about 90%, and specific about 80% than plain films and computed tomography. They can also detect soft tissue abscesses and epidural, paravertebral, or psoas abscesses that may require surgical drainage. They can also be used to delineate anatomy before surgery. Nonetheless, false positive MRI results may occur in patients with non-infectious conditions such as fractures, tumors, and healed osteomyelitis. So you have to be careful, and clinical judgment still does come into play here. In patients with a pacemaker or metal hardwire precluding MRI, to address the wrong answers, uh, patients with a pacemaker or metal hardware precluding MRI or in those in whom MRI results are inconclusive, CT um, or uh, nuclear studies can be used. CT sh uh, show excellent anatomic detail, and CT is the imaging study of choice for patients with osteomyelitis when MRI cannot be obtained.
obtained. So first choice MRI, second choice uh, is a CT scan. Nuclear imaging studies can reliably detect inflammation as a result of acute infection. However, such visualized abnormalities, which may be caused by bone turnover inflammation, can also have other non-infectious causes, including trauma, neoplasm, and DJD. Gallium scanning, once the gold standard for cancer diagnosis, may still be used to visualize inflammation and chronic infection, partly because gallium binds to the membranes of neutrophils that are recruited to a site of infection. However, leukocyte-labeled nuclear scans have almost entirely replaced this imaging technique. So except in the setting of diminished blood flow to the affected area, a negative finding on three-phase bone scan confers a high negative predictive value for osteomyelitis. So I don't know. I, I don't know if I would try to remember all this stuff about nuclear medicine scans because you're generally not going to be asked about them as much, but more about what the correct way to go is for looking for osteo. So key point here is magnetic resonance imaging is the imaging study of choice for suspected osteomyelitis. And remember that if the patient has uh, can't get uh, an MRI because of some sort of metal hardware clip, uh, pacemaker and such, CT scan is your second uh, choice that you would go with. So that is it for these five questions. We blew through those. Uh, we are all the way up to Question number 43, which I'll try and get to the next couple few days whenever I can. And I have a little treat for you coming up next. And I don't know, this um, next brief portion of a recording just reminds me of being stuck at home, sequestered because of the COVID-19 virus and the story doesn't involve a virus, it involves a cat. The sun did not shine, it was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. I sat there with Sally, we sat there, we two, and I said how I wish we had something to do. Too wet to go out, and too cold to play ball. So we sat in the house, we did nothing at all. So all we could do was to sit, 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 sit. And we did not like it, not one little bit. And then something went bump. How that bump made us jump. We looked, then we saw him step in on the mat. We looked and we saw him, the cat in the hat. And he said to us, why do you sit there like that? I know it is wet and the sun is not sunny, but we can have lots of good fun that is funny. I know some good games we could play, said the cat. I know some new tricks, said the cat in the hat. A lot of good tricks I will show them to you. Your mother will not mind at all if I do.